Welcome to today's episode of Places, People, Purpose. Today's episode is very exciting as we are embarking upon our discovery of a new place that we think you will enjoy learning about very much, and that place is Rwanda. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Nestled within the scenic landscapes of East Africa lies a nation of remarkable beauty, resilience, and rich history. Rwanda, often referred to as the land of a thousand hills, has transcended its tragic past to emerge as a beacon of hope and progress on the African continent. From its breathtaking vistas to its vibrant culture, Rwanda offers an experience that captivates the senses and touches the heart. Rwanda's geography is a testament to nature's artistry, characterized by rolling hills, lush valleys, and serene lakes. The country's topography is as diverse as it is breathtaking. The verdant hillsides are not only an iconic image, but also an embodiment of the nation's agrarian way of life. Rwanda is situated within the heart of the African continent and bordered by several African nations. Its geographical location plays a pivotal role in shaping its history, culture, and interactions with neighboring countries. With the Democratic Republic of Congo to the west, Uganda to the north, Tanzania to the east, and Burundi to the south, Rwanda's geographical centrality has made it a hub for cross-border trade, cultural exchange, and diplomatic interactions. With that bit of information about Rwanda's geographical attributes, let's now turn to its difficult and traumatic historical background. It's not an easy story to tell, but it is necessary to know in order to understand where the country is today and how it got there. Long before European influences reached its borders, Rwanda's hills and valleys were inhabited by a mosaic of ethnic groups. The Twa, Hutu, and Tutsi communities were the country's three dominant ethnic groups, and they coexisted, each with their own unique customs and ways of life. By the 1900s, the three dominant ethnic groups were deeply integrated to the point where it would have been difficult to tell them apart. The groups had a shared language, many of the same cultural practices, and believed in the same religion. It was mostly through their means of production, cattle herding for the Tutsi, farming for the Hutu, and hunting gathering for the Twa, that distinctions were made. In 1884, certain events that took place in Europe would profoundly change the historical trajectory for the Kingdom of Rwanda. During the Berlin Conference, without consultation with the Rwandan people, it was decided that Rwanda would be part of the German Empire. As a result, in 1890, the kingdom was incorporated into a German East Africa protectorate. After World War I, Rwanda was transferred from German to Belgian colonial rule as a result of the reorganization of colonial territories following the war and the establishment of the League of Nations. Belgium's role in the war and its colonial ambitions in Africa led to its rule over Rwanda and Burundi, 
which had previously been under German colonial authority. This transfer had profound and lasting consequences for Rwanda's history and its social and political dynamics. The Belgian colonizers created ethnic divisions, imposing rigid classifications upon the Tutsi, Hutu, and Twa populations. The official census of 1933 to 1934 was the first practical measure towards constructing Hutu and Tutsi as distinct racial categories. Later, in 1935, the Belgian authorities began issuing identification cards to people which declared whether they were Hutu, Tutsi, or Twa. It was at this time that the colonial authorities constructed the Tutsi people as non-Indigenous. The Tutsis were favored by the Belgian rulers, leading to tensions and resentment among the different groups. This division acted as a foundation for violence in post-colonial Rwanda. By the time Rwanda gained its independence in 1962, its racial divisions had become deeply entrenched, setting the stage for future conflicts. The Rwandan government continued to allocate and use the same identification documents that identified people as Hutu or Tutsi during the colonial period. As a result, the decades following independence were marked by political instability, power struggles, and discrimination against the Hutu majority. As tensions simmered, Rwanda's societal fabric was strained to the breaking point. The assassination of Rwanda's president on April 6, 1994, acted as a catalyst, unleashing a horrifying wave of violence. This was the spark that ignited an extremely volatile situation and started an all-out genocide against Tutsi people in Rwanda. Hutu factions within the government immediately seized the opportunity to launch a planned, systematic campaign of violence. The government and armed forces encouraged civilians to carry out the murder of their neighbors, friends, and even family members. Hutus who refused to do so were then targeted and attacked. Radio broadcasts and other media propaganda were used to fuel hatred against Tutsis by Hutus. The murderers used a variety of weapons, such as machetes, clubs with nails embedded in them, and axes. Despite the horrific scenes taking place across Rwanda, there were also acts of bravery. Sula was an elderly woman who lived alone on a small farm and had knowledge of natural medicines. When the genocide began, she hit more than 20 Tutsis in her animal shed and fed them from her small stock of vegetables. When attackers came to her farm, she used her reputation as a witch to frighten them off and protect the people who were hiding. Of course, this is just one example of extreme courage and bravery that rose up against the wave of hatred sweeping the country. The genocide officially ended in July 1994 when the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or RPF, which was a Tutsi rebel group, captured Kigali, the capital. It is difficult to comprehend, but between April and July 1994, 
more than 800,000 Tutsi people were killed. The RPF occupied Kigali and took over power in Rwanda, with Paul Kagame becoming the de facto leader. Over the span of the next two weeks, more than two million Hutu people fled the country. Most of them fled to the Democratic Republic of Congo, then called Zaire, or to Tanzania. Even today, armed militia monitor the country's borders to ensure that none of the Hutu who fled after the genocide try to return. Rwanda itself was greatly transformed by the 1994 genocide and the RPF coming to power. The first issue to deal with for the new regime was how to exact justice on the perpetrators of the genocide and somehow set the stage for a period of reconciliation and reconstruction. Justice would prove to be a difficult ordeal, as the genocide in Rwanda was one of mass participation by the civilian population. The Rwandan government estimated that there were millions of Rwandan people who actively participated in the killings. To dispense justice, special courts called gachacha courts were set up all around the country to facilitate community-inspired justice against local perpetrators of the genocide. By the end of 2006, over 800,000 suspects had been accused of various crimes in the gachacha courts. In 2007, the trial phase began, and over the next three and a half years, 423,000 557 people were tried. The teaching of history in Rwanda's schools was deeply affected by the genocide, and for the next 15 years, teachers were only allowed to teach a narrative of national unity. This meant that any historical period that emphasized internal conflict and division was underplayed in historical teaching. The political language also changed and people could no longer speak about a Hutu or Tutsi identity. The categories in which the 1994 genocide came to be understood were refugees, returnees, victims, survivors, and perpetrators. This was an attempt to completely eradicate Hutu and Tutsi as political identities. As you can see, Rwanda's historical background is a complex mosaic of triumphs over adversity, cultural resilience, and the pursuit of reconciliation. It is a nation that refuses to be defined solely by its darkest moments, but instead draws strength from the lessons of its past. The Rwandan people have chosen the path of unity and progress, being cognizant of their history while striving for a future of peace and prosperity. As the nation continues to evolve, its history serves as a powerful reminder of the human capacity to heal, rebuild, and create a brighter tomorrow. That's the end of this powerful story for today. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Tomorrow, we will turn our attention to the Rwanda of today and better understand the amazing transformation that has taken place in the country and people 
since the 1900s. It is definitely something you don't want to miss. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode of Places, People, Purpose, where we create connections to our world.